0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. So glad to be here this afternoon along with James Blend who is producing today's program, Clark Hilton engineering today's program and Dan Rice who is sacrificing the use of his office for the sake of the cause. We are glad to have you with us today. We'll be talking in the second hour with Janelle Alberts. She's the co-author of Honest Answers, Exploring God's Questions with Your Tweens. And it's a great book, especially during this season, because we're spending more time at home with family. And if you have tweens with questions, or you'd like to prepare uh, your tweens uh, for questions, this is a great resource for you while you are sheltering in place. Anyway, Janelle Alberts will join us. In the five o'clock hour. We'll also remember J.I. Packer, the author who died this weekend at 93. We'll take a look back at his life and legacy, a very influential evangelical who passed away again this weekend. J.I. Packer, dead at 93, but alive forevermore. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, marching demonstrators damaged and looted buildings in downtown Seattle on Sunday before turning violent, resulting in the arrest of two people, leaving a police officer hospitalized. In addition, police said on Sunday evening that the demonstrators had broken out several windows of the East Precinct, then threw a device into the lobby that ignited a small fire. That fire was later extinguished. No injuries were reported, but damage was. The demonstration that started between 2 and 3 p.m. resulted in crowds blocking an intersection. This is in Seattle and, of course, in Portland. Well, things have continued here as well. In other related developments, a Washington police officer was killed following a traffic stop. He said he'd always wanted to serve, according to his brother. And Representative Jayapal has ducked questions on political the political impact of the CHOP zone in the Seattle district. And the mayor there plans to move 911, the phone number, and other functions outside the police department. Seattle's police chief says the 50% budget cut that they have uh, initiated there would be a tragic decision, a mistake, and... It's politically motivated. Well, Kanye West got a bit emotional on the pro-life cause at a freewheeling presidential campaign event in Southern California. Apparently, he's still in the race. In his uh, first campaign event since declaring himself a presidential candidate, rapper Kanye West, he delivered a freewheeling monologue on Sunday in South Carolina, touching on topics such as abortion, which left him emotional. No more Plan B, Plan A, he said, to a mixed response from the audience about the emergency contraceptive that helps prevent pregnancy within 72 hours after unprotected sex. Well, West said that while he believed abortion should be legal, financial incentives to help struggling mothers could be a way to discourage the practice. Everybody that has a baby gets a million dollars, he said, as an example. Also, D.C., Washington, D.C., a man was killed, eight others wounded in the nation's capital. Just another day, just another weekend. A Kentucky couple was fit with ankle monitors placed on home arrest for refusing to sign a quarantine set of documents. A video has surfaced of the Chinese putting blindfolded Uyghur people on trains, also from that story, published by the BBC. According to recent research by the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, The rate of population growth in the two largest Uyghur prefunctures in uh, Xinjiang fell by more than 80% between 2013 and 2018. Well, there's a BBC video of the Chinese ambassador to the UK trying to explain away what is happening to these prisoners. It's startlingly poor, but he at least makes the effort. And CBN News reports that meanwhile... Government officials are ordering Christians who receive welfare payments to replace crosses, religious symbols, and images inside their homes with portraits of China's communist leader. Pray for the persecuted church. Meanwhile, the purge in Hong Kong continues as China goes after educators. Well, Democrats are upset at the uh, treatment by the feds of rioters here in Portland, which they and the Washington Times story calls protesters, such as in this strange sentence. Late Saturday, protesters broke into a building, set it on fire and started dumpster fires. I think the protesters might be the wrong word. From just over the week uh, ago, a black uh, policeman from Portland talks about the abuse he gets from white so-called protesters who are ordering blacks around and bullying black people. Police officers, apparently not all black lives matter, particularly those who are draped in blue. The New York Post writes, questions do need asking about the Fed tactics. Does the situation really require unmarked vehicles and officers working without visible shield numbers or other clear ID or even uniforms? Yet the answers may be yes and yes, if there are real concerns about law enforcers' personal safety. And we've seen recently that that is the case. Recent days have already seen the public release of some officers' personal info, doxing that invites harassment or worse, at their homes. Ginsburg has uh, been undergoing chemotherapy, we learned last week. Cancer has returned. The Supreme Court justice is 87. She claims no plans to retire as of yet. And the governor of Missouri is going to pardon the gun-waving couple who are attempting to protect their property during a recent um, protest. If they are indicted, that governor will protect them or rather pardon them. And a black woman has defaced another Black Lives Matter mural. Yeah, you heard me right. A black woman defacing the Black Lives Matter mural. The African-American community is not monolithic, and many, if not most, are opposed to much of what's going on in their name at this point. She's been dumping buckets of paint on them, wearing a shirt that reads, Jesus Matters. She addressed her efforts in a long Facebook post in which she praised the efforts of police, saying we need law enforcement. Former Vice President Biden and presumptive Democratic presidential nominee staffer compared Cops unfavorably to pigs, then deleted the post after being confronted. Biden's team has not yet responded to the comments. Meanwhile, the media is rushing to say Biden wouldn't defund the police, despite Biden's own words to the contrary. And a pro-life artist has painted Baby Lives Matter on the street in front of the Planned Parenthood. It was quickly removed, but not before the image was shared tens of thousands of times. And a federal judge on Friday ordered the government to revive the DACA program as it existed before President Trump tried to phase it out in 2017, which means opening it up to brand new applications. The Washington Post reports that's a key issue that had remained in limbo after last month's Supreme Court ruling, which found the Trump phase out cut. Too many corners. The order also renews an indirect pathway to citizenship known as advanced parole that some DACA applicants had used to gain green cards. However, the Times adds President Trump has hinted he will attempt another phase out of DACA this time following all the procedures the court recommended and requires. that says he skipped the last time, but he also uh, has also sent other signals, including a confusion uh, uh, claim that he will sign something granting DACA recipients a direct pathway to citizenship. Well, stay tuned. We'll try to clarify if he does. Well, the Federalists Tristan Justice writes Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee released new documents Friday further undercutting the reliability of the already discredited Democrat-funded Christopher Steele dossier and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Warrants, or FISA, that were approved by deep state operatives conducting illegal surveillance against officials working for the Trump campaign. The pair of documents reveal more evidence that the FBI was aware of the dossier's, dossier's credibility Issues in early 2017 it proceeded with its unlawful surveillance anyway under the authority of warrants that the FISA court ruled illegitimate earlier this year. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that uh, in the second hour of today's program, we're going to talk with Janelle Alberts. She's the co author of Honest Answers Exploring God's Questions with Your Tweens. The book is published by Craigle and is currently available. We're also going to remember J.I. Packer, who uh, has gone on to his reward, dead at 93. J.I. Packer. John Lewis also passed away. Talk a bit about his life and legacy. All of that coming up here on The Georgine Rice Show. We're also going to take a look at the revolution that we are currently under and whether or not it's succeeding. So I hope you'll stay with us as we cover that and much more throughout today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back momentarily.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. We're taking a look at some of the headlines over the last couple of days. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC, uh, she backed a couple of candidates. Jamal Bauman, he has defeated the powerful Democrat Representative Elliot Engel in the New York primary, And I am tolerating chemotherapy well, says 87-year-old Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, battling cancer again, but says she's not retiring. And lawmakers are far apart on a new coronavirus relief bill. The sticking point are are direct payments, liability reform, aid for states and local governments, school reopening and small business relief. You know, just a few small items. The president expediently demands a payroll tax cut while the GOP is eyeing benefit cuts for the unemployed, and civil rights pioneer and Atlanta Congressman John Lewis has died of pancreatic cancer. The Pentagon has banned the Confederate flag in a way to avoid the president's wrath, and Iran has executed a man convicted of giving information about terrorist Qassam Soleimani to the U.S. China has expanded its amphibious forces to challenge the U.S. supremacy beyond Asia And in the latest COVID-19 news, the CDC test kits generate 30% false positive and 20% false negative results. Peer-reviewed findings confirm. Really? 20% false negative results, 30% false positive. So what does that do with the numbers and what kind of um, result might one expect when you have a COVID-19 lobotomy as I have? Well, most cases in New York City in March traced uh, have been traced to Europe. Not really sure how they did that, but UPI reported on it. Uh, Synergen, a drug, shows some lower risk of uh, severe, in severe cases of COVID-19, they're now reporting. And cholesterol-lowering drug phenofibrate, or Tricor, is providing a glimmer of hope as well. In business, strike for black lives. Tens of thousands uh, intend or did walk off the job today to protest systematic racism. And the Federal Trade Commission is considering deposing top Facebook executives in an antitrust probe. While lawlessness enabling Portland mayor uh, uh, accusing um, accuses the president of absolute abuse of federal law enforcement, demands officers leave a U.S. Uh, The U.S. city's uh, nightly violence continues, saying they're responsible for the violence that predated their presence, by the way. Seattle rioters, they've damaged and looted stores while injuring 12 police officers, which might explain why the feds are undercover here. University of Connecticut student government leaders are resigning because they're white. Is this is this what the solution is supposed to look like? Virginia is mandating uh, slavery lessons for kindergartners one would assume, to discourage the notion of slavery that's been outlawed for many years in this country. Anyway, following the footsteps of the the United Teachers Los Angeles, North Carolina Teachers Union, they're demanding universal health care and welfare for illegal immigrants to reopen the schools. And Bubba Wallace was booed at NASCAR uh, as the Confederate flag flew, and legally armed driver killed a gunman to stop a fatal shooting spree in Indiana. A legal gunman stopping a fatal shooting by someone who did not have a firearm legally and the family that owns the new york times were apparently slaveholders i want to see what blm and the radicals have to say and do about that again the family that owns the new york times were slaveholders do we tear down the building uh do you bomb it do you um, wreck it what do you do with the new york times Nearly 50% of Americans, if you're going to follow the logic that we've seen with the destruction of monuments, some of which uphold the very ideals one presumes is at the heart of many of these protests. Nearly 50% of Americans believe mail-in voting is vulnerable to significant levels of fraud. The other 50%, well, they just might be delusional. And finally, taking a look at some of uh, the events that occurred on this very day in history, 1944. An attempt by a group of German officials to assassinate Adolf Hitler with a bomb fails as the explosion only wounds the Nazi leader. 1968, the first International Special Olympic Summer Games organized by Eunice Kennedy Shriver are held at Soldier Field in Chicago. 1969, astronauts uh, Neil Armstrong and uh, Edwin Buzz Aldrin become the first men to walk on the moon after reaching the surface in their Apollo 11 lunar module. 1976, America's Viking 1 robot spacecraft makes a successful first-ever landing on Mars. 1977, the U.N. Security Council votes to admit Vietnam to the world body. And finally, on this day in history, 2012, gunman James Holmes opens fire inside a crowded movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, during a midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises, killing 12 people, wounding 70 others. Holmes will be convicted of murder and attempted murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Well, in other news, as arrests here in Portland um, of Portland protesters by unidentified federal agents gained national attention, the U.S. Attorney for Oregon announced that he would request an investigation into the matter. Uh, Billy Williams said in a statement on Friday based on news accounts circulating that alleged federal law enforcement detained two protesters without probable cause. I have requested the Department of Homeland Security of the Inspector General to open a separate investigation directed specifically at the actions of DHS personnel. Williams is the top federal law enforcement official in the state. The announcement came on the heels of statements from Democrat elected representatives in Oregon, including Senators Wyden and Merkley, neither of whom actually live in the Portland area and have to live with what's happening here. Um, Along with uh, representatives Earl Blumenauer and Suzanne Bonamici said they would call for an investigation into the uh, unrequested presence and violent actions of federal forces in Portland and demand that federal agents immediately be removed from the city. Now, I think it's important to point out the question here is jurisdiction. Does the federal or do the federal agents have jurisdiction in the city of Portland? The truth is, if federal law is being violated, they have jurisdiction and it's not required for local officials. Now, whether or not you agree with the notion, uh, it's not required that um, local officials uh, either request or grant permission for them to be there. The law and this is what they've done all along. If you want to change the law, that's another matter. But the question is jurisdiction. And sadly, federal laws have been violated, so these um, law enforcement officials do have jurisdiction. Uh, Whether or not it's being mishandled is another question, but as to whether or not they can and should be here or will continue to be here has little to do with whether or not the mayor, who's unwilling to do anything with the authority he actually has over law enforcement in this city and has chosen not to wield it. Um, he's irrelevant to whether or not they have jurisdiction. Anyway, these calls for an investigation were were in response to reports that a protester suffered a severe head injury after being shot in the head with an impact munition fired by a police officer on Saturday and reports that multiple protesters were pulled off the street by unidentified federal agents in downtown Portland and swept away into unmarked vehicles. First reported by the Oregon Public Broadcasting on Thursday, the story of the detentions has received attention from the national media following a visit to Portland by the interim head of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. Now, Wolf on Thursday said his visit was meant to restore order to the city, which is desperately needed, which he claimed has been under siege for, he said at that time, 47 days. It's been many more since Uh, 47 straight days of violence by a mob. On Friday, he tweeted out photos of himself touring federal property in downtown Portland, highlighting graffiti, boarded-up windows, and much more illustrating what's been going on here. Uh, His presence uh, received swift condemnation from the Oregon governor, Kate Brown, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, Multnomah County Sheriff Mike Reese, and others who released statements in opposition to the visit. Brown said she told Wolf that the federal government should remove all federal uh, officers from the streets. His response showed me he is on a mission to provoke confrontation for political purposes, she said. Well, for whatever purpose, political or otherwise, I wish she, the mayor of uh, the city of Portland, the Multnomah County Sheriff, and uh, others would... uh, for the sake of the vast majority of residents in the city of Portland that they would handle so that there would be no necessity, no argument, no uh, suggestion that feds were necessary here. Uh, part of the reason that the frustration is growing among law abiding citizens here is the unwillingness on the part of leaders here whose job it is who have the authority to protect the property, the people here in the city of Portland. Well, protests in Portland were originally spurred by the death of George Floyd. That that has long since faded out of view and uh, they continue under other pretenses. Um, So it started with the death of George Floyd uh, at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department in May and have at times drawn thousands of people to marches and events across the city, pointed at the the pursuit of justice. Some protesters, however, have gathered nightly at the downtown justice center where confrontational events have led to violent crackdowns by police, including the use of tear gas, non-lethal munitions, and so on, in response to what protesters, in quotes, are continuing to do night after night after night after night after night after night in the city of Portland. I cannot tell you how tired I am of hearing the helicopters overhead who are um, presumably witnessing all of this, perhaps monitoring, I'm not really sure. But I would like to see uh, leaders come up with some constructive way to meet with protesters they support and to put an end to the destruction of property, to the um, businesses that have been impacted, I would like to see um, them uh, and their needs addressed in some constructive way. That's not likely to happen. Thus, the federal agents. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this beautiful, rather hot, Monday afternoon. Well, after more than a month and a half of nightly protesting and escalating tension between demonstrators and law enforcement, the Portland Police Association, along with representatives from the community, called for an end to destruction and called on protesters to meet with them to work toward a solution. Now, I am so grateful to hear the voice of reason asking to meet with those who are disgruntled. Let's work toward a solution. Now, I'm grateful that that included uh, faith leaders. The pastor of Vancouver Avenue First Baptist Church was among them. Well, the Portland Police Union President Daryl Turner says, if you care about black lives, if you care about the community, if you care about your officers, if you care about your city, the only thing you need to do is make this stop. Turner called out elected officials for condoning violence and chaos in Portland and not acting. This is no longer about George Floyd, he went on to say. This is no longer about racial equality or social justice. This is no longer about reform or the evolution of policing, Turner said. This is about violence, rioting, destruction, chaos, uh, anarchy, buildings on fire, dumpsters on fire, broken glass, damaged businesses in Old Town, the Pearl, Northeast and North Portland. Well, business owners, faith leaders, and community members also joined Turner at the press conference. And as I mentioned, the pastor of Vancouver Avenue First Baptist Church, J.W. Matt Hennessy, called for a moratorium on the streets and issued an invitation to those who were setting fires, causing destruction and looting, to meet with him and others to talk, to be heard, and to look for solutions. If you want to make change, if you are serious about change, then I'm begging you as a citizen of this city, put down your need for violence. Uh, Pastor Hennessy said, well, uh, Mr. Turner, Pastor Hennessy and others spoke outside the union headquarters on North Lombard, where a riot was declared on Saturday night and the building was set on fire. The demonstration was one of two gatherings on Saturday night involving hundreds of people calling for police reform and an end to systematic racism. The other was outside the Multnomah County Justice Center in downtown Portland. The area has been the site of many clashes between protesters and law enforcement over the last seven weeks. But again, kudos to community leaders uh, who are raising their voices and calling for an end to the violence, something I don't think I've heard the the mayor of the city of Portland do in so many words. Robin Smith, writing for the Patriot Post, points out that Americans are getting a, a trial run of socialism right now. Businesses have been told whether they can or cannot open, and at what capacity they may operate by governments. Trillions of dollars have been spent, put into the hands of workers, billion, uh, rather business owners, and those who fell victim to the destruction of jobs from the COVID-19 shutdowns. With enhanced unemployment, the Paycheck Protection Program, and other pandemic supplements, the reality is setting in. When capitalism is shelved and the state-run economies prevail, Americans don't thrive and businesses close permanently. Bankruptcies are up to the same level of the 2008 financial crisis with almost 3,500 in Chapter 11 protection already this year. Worse, there are almost certainly more to come, especially if leftists achieve their desired second shutdown. A survey published by the National Federation of Independent Businesses reveals that 46 percent of small businesses that received government assistance anticipate a continued need over the next year in the current environment of uncertainty. Restaurants and small businesses are particularly impacted with not only forced shutdowns and slow reopenings, but with a reduced capacity to uh, capacity, rather, despite much of the overhead and expenses remaining fixed. These statistics and, and trials will only grow and worsen with the deliberately socialist agenda, global pandemic or not. Our small foray into socialism is exactly what Marxists want for our nation. They understand that this election cycle is about capturing power to make policies, controlling the very principles that govern our key institutions, education, the family, entertainment, mass media, and the various sectors of our economy. The current crises, crises, plural, are serving as a springboard for what could, with the Democrat-led government, become a fulfillment of their desires, the death of capitalism entirely. The socialist left would have America choose between liberty and safety, the ability to earn a living and dependence. Patriots are being asked to sacrifice life, liberty, and pursuits of happiness along with private property and wealth. As November approaches, observe the contrast between those invested in dread, dismay, and destruction and those encouraging renewal, rebuilding, and results. Those that are investing in failure, economic collapse, and government dependence versus those uh, who aim to quickly return to the economic expansion that marked the three years preceding COVID-19. And the question is, what will voters choose? Well, in an encouraging note, on an encouraging note, we're seeing good immune response in almost everybody, says Dr. Adrian Hill. He's the director of the Jenner Institute at Oxford University that focuses on developing vaccines. What this vaccine does particularly well is trigger both arms of the immune system. We're talking about the Oxford University coronavirus vaccine trial that is producing pretty strong immune response. Larger trials of the vaccine called CHAD-OXY-NCOV-19, with about 10,000 participants uh, participants are currently underway, and a trial looking to test 30,000 people in the U.S. is expected to begin within the next few weeks. Even as testing of the vaccine's effectiveness is underway, AstraZeneca said, It's working to manufacture 2 billion doses, including 400 million for the U.S. and U.K., with distribution to the public pending on the success of the clinical trials. The vaccine caused no serious adverse events, but did cause minor side effects, including fever, chills, headache and muscle pain. At least 23 of about 100 experimental coronavirus vaccines have reached the human trial stage, including Oxford's trial. Widespread availability of a vaccine for the coronavirus, which has infected more than 14 million people globally, killed more than 606,000, is expected next year if trials are successful. But we're now hearing it's probably not any sooner than next year. And a network of California churches filed a lawsuit against Governor Gavin Newsom on Friday, defying the state's coronavirus lockdown orders against holding indoor church services while state officials encourage protests. Che the lead pastor of Harvest Rock Church, addressed the Democrat governor in his message Sunday at the um, Pasadena location. He said at the time, I want us to pray right now that we will win that court case. No one is above the Constitution. No one is above the law. An told his congregation, as a pastor, I believe we've been essential for 2,000 years. Liberty Council is representing Harvest International Ministry, which also has churches in Corona, Irvine, and is connected to thousands of ministries around the world. An said, and again, that's the pastor, I just feel the hypocrisy of encouraging protests. We are all for that, but let's just be consistent. Well, Newsom encouraged uh, tens of thousands of people to gather for mass protests. He bans all in-person worship and home Bible studies and fellowship. I didn't realize home Bible studies was on that list. Such repression is well known in despotic governments. Um, Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council, said in a statement on the lawsuit, It's shocking that even home fellowship is banned in America. This outrage will not stand. Well, Ons congregations are the latest to join the battle between Newsom and houses of worship over coronavirus restrictions. Three Northern California churches, Calvary Chapel Ukiah, Calvary Chapel of Fort Bragg, and River of Life Church in Oroville, filed a suit on Wednesday, represented by the American Center for Law and Justice, or ACLJ, seeking to block Newsom's July 1st ban on singing in houses of work to stop the spread of coronavirus. And after facing another spike in COVID-19 cases, Newsom announced last week that all bars across the state must close, that restaurants, wineries, tasting rooms, family entertainment centers, zoos, museums, card rooms must suspend their indoor activities. Well, some houses of worship had to shut down again, too. The governor announced that all gyms, places of worship, malls, personal care services, barbershops, salons, non-critical services, uh, offices in counties on the state's uh, monitoring list had to shut down under the new order. The order affects more than 30 counties, which are home to about 80 percent of California's population. The church is not standing down. Well, the president is considering not signing the coronavirus relief bill without a payroll tax cut. We'll tell you more about that when we come back from the break. And we'll also tell you a little bit about um, the UN, which is weaponized coronavirus crisis to fund abortion. All of that when you return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in our next hour, we're going to talk with Janelle Alberts. She's the co author of Honest Answers Exploring God Questions with Your Queens. The book is published by. Craig Well, President Trump would consider not signing a fourth round of coronavirus relief funding if it doesn't include a payroll tax cut, he said Sunday. I want to see it, Trump said. He was speaking on Fox News Sunday. I have to see, but uh, yeah, I would consider not signing it if it doesn't have a payroll tax cut. Well, the White House and Congress are expected to cobble together a phase four coronavirus relief bill as many Americans' financial futures remain uncertain because of Coronavirus. We're working on a phase four. We're working with Congress. The president said during the press briefing earlier in July, work has started. Steve Mnuchin can uh, give you a little briefing talking about payroll tax cuts. We're talking about more money being infused. Well, first it was House Speaker Pelosi. Now it's the U.N weaponizing the coronavirus crisis to fund the abortion uh, issue. Right now, vital coronavirus aid funding needed to address an international pandemic-related food shortage is being held up by a U.N. commission and extreme pro-abortion member states because they are demanding abortion funding in the package. They're using children's lives as collateral, letting them starve to death if the plan doesn't include funds to kill unborn children. this is literally worshipping at the altar of abortion. ACLJ questions whether or not it's even demonic. Well, the Pelosi-led House of Representatives was prevented from slipping abortion funding into its coronavirus uh, funding bills, and uh, ACLJ says that they're not going to let the U.N. fund abortions either. They're talking about millions of dollars in U.N. funding, which the U.S. taxpayer contributes to for abortion under the guise of addressing the coronavirus. Well, the U.N. has been uh, caught... And the ACLJ is fighting back. They're mobilizing their global resources. In fact, they have a petition. You can find out more about that on their website. But again, uh, tethering abortion funding to uh, COVID-19 hunger relief is what they're uh, battling at this point. I appreciated Andrew McCarthy pointing out that the revolution is winning. And yes, we are in the midst, in the throes of a sort of attempted revolution, at least. He points out that radicals from the 1960s and 70s now hold powerful positions in government and academia. And this is what the revolution looks like. Whether underground terrorists who made no secret of being anti-American, and that's with three Ks in the middle, small C communists, are coming more, uh, becoming and having more success than they could have dreamed of in the 1960s. They're dominating the language, you know, uh, that whole white privilege nostrum that we're uh, paying universities sixty thousand dollars per year to drum into children's brains, it is derived from their lamentation of white skin privilege in their ideology. The revolution to overthrow the capitalist, racist, imperialist system summoned them, lily white radicals, to abandon their privilege and embrace the armed struggle end quote. Well, among their most influential thinkers was Bill Ayers. He got a windfall from the government's failure to prosecute him for the bombings he carried out and the mass murders he planned, but was insufficiently competent to execute. It was a second career as a distinguished professor of education at the University of Illinois. As Saul Stern relates in the 2006 City Journal essay that should be required reading today, this entailing designed, um, Designing curricula used by today's hard-left academics based on what Ayers saw as a moral imperative to convert schools into social justice indoctrination labs, and it worked. Of course, in the days before they brought the revolution into the classroom, they pursued it on urban streets, prioritizing war on cops. To the avant-garde, the police are the pointy end of the aggressive government spear, enforcing its laws and imposing the racist society's caste system. For the revolution to succeed, the police have to be discredited, defunded, and defanged. So this is not a new movement we're seeing now. For the weather underground, that meant branching into such uh, radical offshoots as the May 19th communist organization and conspiring with black separatists. Again, nothing new under the sun. So it was uh, that such weather Confederates as Susan Rosenberg, Kathy uh, uh, Baudin, uh, David Gilbert, among others, teamed with the Black Liberation Army to carry out the infamous 1981 robbery of a Brinks armored truck at Nantucket Mall near Nyack, New York. At that time, Rosenberg was already suspected in the 1979 New Jersey jailbreak of Joanna uh, Chizomard, also known as Asarda Shakur, the Black Liberation Army leader, who'd been convicted of murdering New Jersey State Trooper Werner Forrester. Chesimard fled the country and was given asylum by Fidel Castro's communist regime in Cuba, where she lives Today, In robbing the Brinks truck, the terrorists shot at a security guard, murdering one of them, Peter Page. In a firefight with NIAC, police, uh, while trying to escape, they killed Sergeant Edward O'Grady and Officer Waverly Brown, the latter a Korean War veteran who had joined the force in 1966, the first African-American to serve in NIAC's police department. Rosenberg went on to um, went on the lamb, rather, finally captured three years later in possession of over 700 pounds of explosives. She and her fellow radicals were planning to use an additional ma'am. A federal judge in New New Jersey sentenced her to 58 years in prison. Budon and Gilbert had left their 14 month old son um, with a sitter in order to participate in the Brinks hikes. But unlike Rosenberg, they were captured right after the bloody uh, shootouts. Uh, one was sentenced to a minimum of 20 years imprisonment with a maximum life sentence and Gilbert to 75 years imprisonment. With his parents in custody, young Chizé, or Shaza uh, Budan was raised by their Confederates, Ayers and Bernadine Dorn. Like Ayers, Dorn was a Weather Underground leader who became an academic after – Uh, eluding significant prosecution for their bombing and mass murder conspiracies, though she did do a short stint in jail for contempt after defying a grand jury subpoena to testify about Rosenberg. Well, in addition to his American academic work, Ayers became a supporter of the late communist dictator Hugo Chavez's education programs in Venezuela. There in 2006, in a speech with a strong man looking on, Ayers proclaimed, teaching invites transformations. It urges revolutions small and large. Later, uh, Chesa Baudouin uh, would follow in Ayers' footsteps, working as a translator and think tank researcher for Chavez's regime. Meanwhile, in Chicago, Ayers and Dorn seamlessly became prominent in Democrat Party politics. At their Hyde Park home in 95, they held a coming out party for an ambitious political unknown, a community organizer named Barack Obama. Two years later, the future president breathlessly endorsed Ayers' polemic, A Kind and Just Parent, as a searing and timely account, the book is an indictment of the U.S. criminal justice system, which airs likens to South Africa under apartheid. As Stanley Kurtz was, um, has recounted, Ayers helped pave Obama's way into the radical left's extensive fundraising network. The two collaborated as board members of the Chicago Annenberg Challenge, doling out more than $100 million to community organizers and education reformers. Susan Rosenberg's terrorism sentence was commuted by President Bill Clinton in 2001, part of the scandalous array of clemency grants on his last day in office. I was then, uh, writes, uh, says the uh, writer of the, the column, Andrew McCarthy, uh, that he was at that time a a, a columnist uh, and a federal prosecutor and had just spent months successfully arguing cases uh, against her release. Instantly, she was offered teaching positions at John Jay College for criminal justice and later Hamilton College, though protests by parents and alumni forced the first to be short lived and the second declined. Not to worry, though, by 2020, she was recruited to become vice chair of the board of directors at Thousand Currents after years as an activist in the thriving field of criminal justice reform and prisoners' rights. In the media, Democrat complex on the campus, former terrorists who found new ways to march the revolution through our institutions, are trans- um, formed into social justice activists like the Chicago Annenberg Challenge thousand currents is granting is a grant making foundation of the radical left similarly tapped into its fundraising networks such group as the WK Kellogg Foundation a deep pocketed nonprofit that promotes racial uh, causes and also supports the tides foundation and George Soros Open Society Foundations among other heavyweight donor organizations and the Novo Foundation founded and controlled by the Buffett family Currently, Thousand Currents' signal uh, project is Black Lives Matter. These are all, as you can see, in some ways connected. Well, the principal organizational framework for Black Lives Matter, or BLM, Global Network Foundation, run by three women, Opal Tometi, Alicia Garza, and Patrice Cullors, the last of whom, that's Cullors, C-U-L-L-O-R-S, the last of whom, in a 2015 interview, Observed, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories. Since George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis, um, uh, the police in late May, Black Lives Matter, has been flooded with donations. Its operations are opaque, however, and it has not qualified for nonprofit status. Now, we'll continue to tell you more about that in just a few moments, but we do need to take a break here at the top of the hour. So do stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, and then we'll be back.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we'll talk with Janelle Alberts. She is the co-author of Honest Answers, Exploring God Questions with Your Tweens. She'll join us in the next couple of segments. Just before the break, we were talking about uh, the revolution that we are currently facing and giving a little bit of background. I'll return to that in just a moment. But I do want to give you the new uh, coronavirus numbers for the state of Oregon. We have two new reported deaths, and Oregon is nearing 15,000, which is an interesting way of putting it. uh, The Oregon Health Authority tallied 277 new confirmed and presumptive COVID-19 cases. And again, that's such an important distinction, confirmed and presumptive. The way these are tallied I think raised some pretty important questions about how we're monitoring this. But uh, that said, Oregon's death toll from the coronavirus reached 262 after the uh, Oregon Health Authority reported two new deaths on Monday. Now, the report was Monday when the deaths actually occurred. Again, even then, it's uh, difficult to know. For example, I think it was last week we had five new coronavirus deaths. Well, if you looked closer, you actually had maybe one on that day, but the other four were scattered uh, from several days before. So a bit confusing and one, or misleading, I'll put it that way, it's a bit misleading and one wonders if that's intentional. Anyway, the two deaths reported were both Marion County men aged 76 and 92 respectively. Both men had underlying medical condition um, and the, again, the latest number, 277 uh, new confirmed or presumptive COVID-19 cases and two deaths in the state of Oregon. Well, just before the break, we were talking about um, whether or not the revolution is succeeding and uh, writer Andrew McCarthy, in his latest column, points out that the revolution is winning, and he points out that radicals from the 60s and 70s now hold powerful positions in government and in academia. Uh, he points out that there are a number of uh, groups, there are grant-making foundations like Thousand Currents, Chicago's Annenberg Challenge, which is a, uh, uh, both of which are grant-making foundations of the radical left. Um, they tap into fundraising networks. There's the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, a deep-pocketed nonprofit that promotes racial causes and also supports the Tides Foundation and George Soros Open Society Foundations, among other heavyweight donor organizations, and the Novo Foundation, which is funded and controlled by the Buffett family. Well, currently, Thousand Currents um, signal it uh, it's the project of Black Lives Matter. I should say the other way around. Um, Black Lives Matter is the signal project of Thousand Currents. Well, the organizational framework for Black Lives Matter is the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. It's run by three women, Opal Tometi, Alicia Garza, and Patrice Cullors. Uh, the last of whom in 2015 is quoted uh, as saying in an interview, myself and Alicia are particularly uh, trained organizers. We are trained Marxists. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories, end quote. Well, since George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis, police uh, in late May, Black Lives Matter has been flooded with donations and operations. Uh, the operations are opaque. Uh, it has no qualified uh, nonprofit status. To navigate around this um, inconvenience, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is sponsored by Thousand Currents, which has nonprofit status, which means donors can make tax-deductible contributions to Thousand Currents, which in turn supports BLM. Well, the arrangement appears to trace back to 2016 when the Kellogg Foundation provided Thousand Currents with $900,000 for building the infrastructure and capacity of the national live- Black Lives Matter hashtag. To support and strengthen their local chapter's organizing capacity. Well, like Rosenberg, Kathy Boudouin has landed on her feet. David Gilbert remains in custody serving his uh, murder sentences, though, uh, as his Wikipedia bio indicates, he's achieved the the coveted activist status. But she has granted parole, was granted in 2003. Um, you'll be stunned to learn that Columbia University quickly rolled out the red carpet for her to pursue a doctorate of teachers uh, at the Teachers College. She's now not only an adjunct professor at Columbia School of Social Work, but also a co-founder and co-director of it, their Center for Justice. Meanwhile, Chesa Budan, the son of um, the once-imprisoned individual, and Gilbert, raised by Ayers and Dorn. Um, is a rising political star. Just 39, he's authored the memoir Gringo, a coming of age in Latin America, studied at Oxford on Rhodes Scholarship, gotten a law degree from Yale, completed a stint in the big city public defender's office, and just last year was elected that city's chief prosecutor, district attorney for San Francisco. His candidacy was backed by the left's financial network, Black Lives Matter, and such luminaries as the communist icon Angela Davis and Senator Bernie Sanders, and the avowed socialist, who appears to be the most in influential supporter of the Joe Biden presidential campaign. At the victory party the night of um, his election, ecstatic supporters chanted, and I cannot uh, say the word because it would not be permitted, um, but it was the police officers association and it wasn't flattering. He had run on a platform of ending what he sees as undue law enforcement focus on people of color, thwarting federal action against undocumented immigrants and prioritizing investigations of not by the police. Well, he's making um, pretty good on his promises. For example, he stopped bringing charges that include a sentencing in uh, Enchantment, California's legislature enacted to um, curb gang violence, spreading that it is disproportionately applied to people of color, who, if they are gang members, apparently have a pass. Just a few weeks ago, he announced a new initiative. The district attorney's office is going to, it will no longer charge cases that rely on information from police officers said to have engaged in miscarriage. Conduct, including excessive force or racial bias, which they themselves will define. Of course, while police must on occasion use superior uh, force in order to subdue criminals, we've seen in recent months that any law enforcement use of force is now liable to be condemned as excessive. So any Um, action by the police can simply exonerate someone. And racial bias, even in the absence of proof of conscience discrimination, it claimed to be unconscious. It is derived from statistical voodoo that scrutinizes the race and ethnicity of suspects in police encounters, while studiously ignoring the offensive behavior uh, that may have prompted the police action. Well, he explained, and again, this is the district attorney in uh, San Francisco, that his office has established a trial integrity unit, Uh, which is uh, compiling a list of cops as to whom there have been misconduct claims. The list is to be updated regularly. Well, that is uh, it is ongoing. It's open ended. It's an investigation of the police department for the benefit of criminals. And that is the right way to describe it. Well, the goals of the revolution have never changed. It's simply airbrushed its uh, terrorist leaders into prominent public scholars and activists with a passion for change and justice. The revolution has lots of money, lots of organization, control of schools, support from one of the nation's two major political parties and the media megaphone. And that's why revolution is winning. The 1960s never ended. They just paved the way for today. And again, Andrew McCarthy writing that the revolution is winning and giving some notion as to why that is, in fact, the case. Well, history is replete with stories of individuals who started out well but finished poorly, no one is entirely right or entirely wrong, but rather is a mix of both. Georgia Democrat Congressman John Lewis, who died on Friday at the age of 80 after a bout with pancreatic cancer, was a man who arguably typified both of these realities. Lewis is rightly regarded as an icon of the civil rights movement. He worked with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the fight to end injustice of racial segregation and discrimination in the the U.S. Lewis stood with King in their unwavering activism to bring about racial equality through nonviolent means, even after he suffered a fractured skull from being hit by police during the famous 1965 march in Selma, Alabama. To his great credit, Lewis never deviated from his belief in peacefully advocating for change and justice. Representative John Lewis, the longtime civil rights activist and ordained Baptist minister who preached about getting in good trouble, died on Friday at the age of 80. From childhood, when Lewis preached to chickens on his family farm, To his twilight years when he urged national prayer breakfast attendees to be a blessing to our fellow human beings, faith was the fuel of Mr. Lewis's life. As people of faith, as a people of hope, we need to the blessing of God Almighty. He prayed as he uttered a benediction for the February breakfast via videotape, with a photo of the U.S. Capitol as a backdrop. It does not matter what language you speak or the color of your skin. It does not matter whether you worship one God, many, or no gods. We are one people, one family. He said at the time. Well, the Congressional Black Caucus announced the death of its longtime member in a statement on Friday, saying the world has lost a legend, the civil rights movement has lost an icon, the city of Alabama has lost one of its most fearless leaders, and the Congressional Black Caucus has lost our long-serving, longest-serving member. The Georgia Congressman had announced in December of 2019 that he'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He died at age 80. Up next we're going to uh, talk to the co-author of a book for families with tweens. Janelle Alberts will be my guest. She's the co-author of Honest Answers: Exploring God Questions with Your Tweens. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, think about it for a moment. Who would have imagined just weeks ago we would be facing so much fear and uncertainty? And yet here we are. There are so many unknowns and most of us have, well, lots of questions. Well, the truth is, if we have questions, we know that kids have them too. Questions about God's goodness and if prayer works. Are we prepared, are parents prepared to answer these questions concerning faith? Well, my next guest and her co-author set out to help parents confidently have these hard conversations with their uh, new release, Honest Answers, exploring God questions with your tweens. It's a great resource, and it couldn't be more timely. Somewhere between Jesus Loves Me and High School Cynicism, they point out the childlike acceptance of Pat Answers about faith. Well, they simply dissipate. Well, Honest Answers is designed to help parents tackle the God questions that make them well, maybe a little uncomfortable. The authority, uh, rather the authors, they know that when tweens start asking questions, they're already old enough to understand the answers, and they're determined to equip parents with the language, the theology, and the confidence they need to join that conversation and to learn how to offer deeply doctrinal answers in a way that connects with their children. It's a great book. Uh, The tween years present an incredible opportunity to build trust with kids and to keep them coming back to their parents for answers rather than finding other sources. Well, my guest is Janelle Alberts. She spent her early career in PR departments for Microsoft and UPS, boiling down logical, clear corporate messaging. She now attempts the same for parents who love scripture. She is a regular contributor to various online sites, including Christianity Today's Gifted for Leadership, Relevant Magazine, and others. Honest Answers is her first book. Her co-author is Ingrid Faro. She's a dean of academic affairs and associate professor of Old Testament at Northern Seminary. She's also associate professor of Old Testament at the Scandinavian School of Theology in Sweden. Together, they are the co-authors of Honest Answers. And we have with us Janelle. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great topic, and I'm grateful for your time. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, this may be a question that doesn't have a specific answer, but at what age do kids generally start asking questions about faith that are a little more challenging for parents to answer?
2: Well, they start young, of course, but our book focuses on maybe 10, 11, 12-year-olds because, you know, prior to that, we can kind of uh, work through it, and it's at that age where they begin to think, huh, my parents know some stuff. My parents will be a resource that I can come back
1: to later. So, trying to up our game a little bit around those ages is handy. Now, is honest answer designed to start a conversation when the child begins asking those questions, or to anticipate that this is a season in which some of the more challenging questions um, are very likely ruminating in the the mind and imagination of a tween? Mm -hmm.
2: It's really both. I mean, it's a way for parents to initiate some of these conversations, and uh, it's really for parents like me and my friends. We meant to be the place that Great, we're going to be really open dialogue here in this house. We're going to answer questions. And then when it came time to it, we weren't that good at it. And so it sort of sets it up. Parents can initiate this with kids in a way that feels, okay, this is just the environment of our house. Here's how we do stuff. We, we talk about this stuff. It's pretty quick. Um, there's usually a tangible associated with it. And then when kids have questions of their own, they can circle back and it's a good resource.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is there a fairly common thread that runs through this age group so that parents can anticipate? These are generally the kinds of things that um, I'm most likely to be asked about by my tween.
2: I think the four topics we cover at least runs across that thread. I don't think there's an exact algorithm, and if only there were. Uh, <laughs> but if we, yeah. But if we, it, the hard part is that we need to have some high level and also some really tangibles they can have in the back of their pocket when they're out for recess, when they're in the back of the bus. I mean, what happens when we, uh, let's say, if our kids say, is Jesus real? I mean, they're not really saying, is Jesus real? I mean, at 10, 11, they still just believe what we say. But what they're really wondering is, how do I fit this with my friends, with what I'm hearing in school, you know, eventually in lit class or science class? And how do I fit these things together? So if we start seeding the kind of conversation, like, is Jesus real? Well, yes, Jesus is real. He is uh, the most documented person of that time in that area uh, he came a while after Alexander the Great. That's why everybody was speaking Greek. Um, seven seconds, eight to just say a few tangibles. So they're in an environment where start, questions are coming up. They're not exactly empty handed. I mean, mm-hmm. they're not, it's not as if they have all the answers, but they also sort of don't have this tone of panic. It sort of undermines the future feeling of wait a minute I've never talked about this stuff like uh, uh ancient literature outside of my house and so now when I do it makes me um it just doesn't sound the same and so using this kind of language a few tangibles it it undermines that feeling for
1: them yeah yeah. Honest Answers is divided into four parts, and it addresses some of the biggest faith questions that come up. Describe for our listeners what these four areas are that you tackle that I think really help inform a parent moving forward and an approach uh, that they might take as the, the tween continues to grow older.
2: Yeah. So we break it into the uh, Bible, uh, prayer, which is our major, uh, which is what a lot of people have come back to, but uh, Bible, prayer, science and then also the church.
1: Now, when it comes to answers, um, some might suggest, and you you address this, you know, can't the Bible just speak for itself? Why do we need an additional resource to help us walk through these anticipated questions?
2: Yeah, well, the Bible, of course, can speak for itself, and it does speak for itself, but we have um, academics in the book saying things like, in defending the Bible. In fact, that Scripture is the place, for instance, where human dignity and value of personhood originated. And these, these, that kind of language maybe doesn't hit home exactly, but when we, you know, bring it in tune with what's happening in the world today, like with a lot of the unrest and some of the um, protests and etc. that the kids have been either living through or seeing on TV, like Brian Stevenson, for instance, he wrote Just Mercy. He was saying, you know, the scripture tells us that Jesus condemns those who wanted to throw stones at the adulterous woman and we can be stone catchers. Why? Because Christians value human dignity and this is where personhood matters. Um, So these are the kinds of conversations that if you just have a few tangibles, and by the way, who has tangibles? I mean, who has time to do that homework? And that's kind of the point. My friends and I thought we had done that homework, but there's nothing that debunks that idea. Like sitting across the kitchen island from your kid asking a major question in the simplest way. And you're thinking, I could really contribute to this moment. I could really contribute to my kid's face right now if I just had a hand. And anyway, so this book is that
1: hand. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let's talk about how each of the chapters um, uh, is designed, because you not only provide parents with a, a helpful way to address their children, but you also equip the parent before that moment comes so that they're prepared. And then you provide a resource that the tween can use um, as well.
2: Yes. So, we set it up so that there's sort of cheat sheets, if you will, so a page, maybe two, for the parent to um, brush up on things that we maybe we already know, or at the very least we thought we knew, but we're not necessarily that great at distilling it down to kid speak. so we have what we call parent primers, and then we have q and a 's and they're guided q and a 's again, there's nothing like. You know, patting yourself on the back as a parent. I'm going to have this open dialogue with my kids. And then you start out with a question and it's crickets. So this helps avoid that awkward silence. Nobody's on the hook. Um, And then thirdly, like I said, it really does include a lot of tangible, but good facts and tidbits. Uh, Like you were alluding to earlier, is this for their questions now or later? Those facts and tidbits will help us cover both. So Maybe they won't catch all the facts now, but later on, they'll think, what did my parents say about such and thus? As in, we, are, we do our homework. With, we're
1: legitimate
2: resources.
1: Yeah, which, again, is going to serve you well moving forward. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, Janelle Alberts, but I do need to take a quick break. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're talking about the book Honest Answers. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Janelle Alberts, who along with her co-author Ingrid Faro are the authors of Honest Answers, Exploring God Questions with Your Tweens. The book is published by Craig and it's an excellent resource to prepare and equip parents for the conversations that they and their tweens are going to have. Um, And again, it it sets a parent up as a great resource, not only during this time of tweens, but moving forward um, as well. Let me ask you what some of the more common questions that tweens are likely to raise about how the Bible came to be, how it was canonized, uh, how it was handed down. One of the things you write about, for example, is oral tradition. I think a lot of young people in particular, and perhaps adults, just assume that means, um, you know, people just kept telling the stories over and over again that so they were remembered. But You, you explain in greater depth um, how that contributed to the reliability of the scriptures that we now hold.
2: Exactly. These are the kinds of things that we parents actually have at our fingertips and we don't even know it. I mean, until you know just a little, even a little about oral tradition, lots of people, scholars who have zero skin in the game will say oral tradition is no joke. I mean, that is a tradition from lots of cultures. It's not just the Bible, like Native American tribes and it entails stringent policies. They were passed down Person to person, they involved meaningful circumstances. You know, it's not goofy, arbitrary lines meant to trip people up the way that the game of telephone does. And does it serve it up for easy reading? No, no. But that doesn't make it the game of telephone.
1: That's a very good point, which is the first thing that a tween would, would think of. Yeah, right.
2: And frankly, some of us parents. I mean, really, a lot of this, the problem isn't that these kids are coming up with these crazy questions. The problem is we have the same kinds of questions. And at some point we have enabled, been enabled that our faith maybe uh, pours over it in a way that we're like, look, we're not going to maybe know some of those details, but I've had enough experiences maybe, or for some reason we've been able to carry on without uh, knowing some of those details, but you know, we're called to be humble, but we're not called to be naive. We don't have to be. We don't have to settle uh, for, you know, it, like that little tidbit on oral tradition. How? What, what kind of ballast does that give mm-hmm. us? Even, even in our relationship with God, not, you know, so much so about, oh, how are we going to carry on conveying this and and you know, handling the Great Commission extremely important but fundamentally my friends and I. what we discovered is it's really about our relationship with God and it it strengthens if it starts strengthening it there it will start strengthening it there with our children too
1: absolutely that certainly was my experience when I had serious questions and was taken seriously and was given answers Mm -hmm. it gave me confidence that the things I didn't yet Mm -hmm. know it gave me confidence yes. to know that those answers were there. I just didn't know them, that it was it was all yes. right to explore because the answers were there. And it, it certainly yes. buoyed up for me my sense of confidence because I became a Christian at a very young age, and I'm grateful mm-hmm. that I had parents and others in my yes. local church who took me seriously and addressed those things that uh, were of interest and concern to me. So this is vital at least in my experience, to, um, as you put it, buoying up uh, someone's faith and the prospect (laughs) of them remaining in the faith moving forward. Another issue that you write about is prayer. And uh, especially when you're young, prayer is a, it's a formula. You pray, you ask, you get whatever it is you pray for. And you may be praying for serious things, Lord, I pray (laughs) that my dad gets well, or I pray that, you know, Mm -hmm. grandma survives this thing. And then if the outcome is different from what we pray for, for a tween in particular, as well as many of the rest of us, that can be very confusing and challenging. Talk a little bit about um, what you write about prayer and how parents can help their kids navigate through what can be very confusing.
2: Yeah, that can be very confusing. And we do kind of dive into um, a little what you were describing. We dive into people who had the good news of having people in their life who would answer questions for them and tackle these kinds of things when prayer was behaving in the way that you just described. So we cite some examples um, like Corey Ten Boom. She's a woman who rescued her neighbors from the Nazis during the Holocaust, and she's asking for stuff. So on the one hand, we really delve into this notion of prayer is about getting to know God Mm -hmm. and also getting to know the race he set before us. The race he set before us as you know the body of believers, the race he set before our children individually, but additionally, so a major focus on that you know in a, in a first attempt to undermine this let 's just ask receive, uh, but at the same time, Corey Tenboom asks for stuff, so she had times of massive divine intervention and answered prayers, and meanwhile, the war raged on. So there's a dichotomy in the examples that we use, and this is prayer. It is, this is why Christianity is not an individual sport. I mean, when Mm. we see other people walking out these sort of dichotomous notions, it's not dichotomous anymore. It works in tandem, and it's very hard to set that out as a flowchart. But when you, you know, talk it out with your kids, with a personal example, so we use Ten as a good example. And then we also riff off of um, a, a, a lecture by Kathy Keller, where mm-hmm. she really just breaks it down very basic, as in prayer, as a practice. And it's not a holy, you know, oh, I have to do it such and thus way, but rather it's kind of like riding a bicycle. You keep it's practice, 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 and that doesn't it's important to do that through a conversation so that it's a proven to be sort of personal with your kids, but also this notion of um, you know really developing a, a, a relationship that ha- like we were saying has a real ballast and it's in yes, answers don't necessarily look exactly like we want them to. Corey Ten Boom wanted the war to end, but meanwhile there were unlimited practically answers to questions yeah. and yeah those are the kinds of if you keep it up you keep it up i mean the way to not give it up is to keep it up um so it's just one of those things when you begin to, to talk it out with the kids having a real tangible of practicing it the way kathy keller kind of talks about it and then using some examples like coryten Timboom. boom that's how we tackle yeah. it
1: You also write about praying unedited, which I think is very useful. We often Mm -hmm. overhear um, people who are praying aloud and we assume this is the language that God uh, hears. Mm -hmm. This is what moves the heart of God. If I pray in a particular way, you leave certain things out, you pray with a Mm -hmm. certain flair. Uh, Talk a little bit about unedited prayer and how useful that can be for a tween who may not be as sophisticated as the pastor and the person known in the church for praying.
2: And someone who is, hurting someone who's going through a divorce someone who's yeah. in pain you know you know their parents are all kinds of things someone who doesn't have someone to sit at lunch I mean it's very hard to put a price tag on hurt and so we can go abuse and war and uh, that ultimately though as you say when you um, pray unedited so this was something honestly I had heard that altered my prayer life and altered my I assume, my relationship fundamentally with God. And that is this, you know, looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he cried out to God. And it was not, oh, I have to come to you saying, I believe in uh, these seven things and I praise these four things and I want to be grateful for eight things. No, it was simply um, his raw Pained emotions, and it was uh, when you know that that's what we're talking about. With this is the God we're talking about. It's it's not sort of you have to come to Him um, in this way that uh, obviously we glorify God, obviously we are grateful to God, but it, if we just let if we just let it sink in, He He, he wants to be a balm. He wants So even if we come to him with an emotion of, I'm mad, I'm sad, I'm scared, he's not looking for a formula. He's looking for you. And that's unedited.
1: You feel free, feel free, but please feel free. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish we had more time because there's so much more to cover in the book, but I would encourage (laughs) parents with tweens in particular, and I would include aunts and uncles and grandparents as well. The book is titled Mm -hmm. Honest Answers, Exploring God Questions with Your Tweens. It helps you better understand them and your role as a parent. And I think your importance as a parent in influencing and helping to direct Mm -hmm. uh, your young people as they're navigating through life and an uncertain world. Janelle Mm -hmm. Alberts, thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: You are so welcome. Again, Janelle Alberts, along with her co-author of Honest Answers, Exploring God Questions with Your Tweens. The book is published by Kregel. Excellent time to pick up a copy and begin some of those conversations, especially if your kids are going to be home with you throughout uh, not only the summer, but possibly in the fall as well. What a gift God has given parents with their uh, with their young people. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. We'll take a look at the life and legacy of J.I. Packer.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, look forward to a conversation with Ron Price. He's the author of Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home. How to enjoy peaceful relationships with the important people in your life. Couldn't be more timely. <laughs> anyway, Ron Price will join us tomorrow on the program. Again, the title of his book, Play Nice. Well, James Inel. Packer, Also known as J.I. Packer, better known uh, by that name, was one of the most famous and influential evangelical leaders of our time. He died on Friday at age 93. J.I. Packer was born in a village outside Gloucester, England on the 22nd of July 1926. He came from a humble stock, being born into a family that he called lower middle class. The religious climate at home and church was that of nominal Anglicanism rather than evangelical belief in Christ as Savior, something that Packer was not taught in his home church. Well, his life-changing changed. Uh, changing childhood experience came at the age of seven, when he was chased out of the schoolyard by a bully onto a busy London road in Gloucester, where he was struck by a bread van and sustained a serious head injury. He carried a visible dent on the side of his head for the rest of his life. Nevertheless, Packer was uncomplaining and accepting of what providence brought into his life from childhood on. Well, much more important than Packer's accident was his conversion to Christ, which happened within two weeks of his matriculation as an undergraduate at Oxford University. Packer committed his life to Christ on the 22nd of October, 1944, while he was attending an evangelistic service sponsored by the Campus InterVarsity Chapter. And although Packer was a serious student pursuing a classics degree, the heartbeat of his life at Oxford was spiritual. It was at Oxford that he first heard lectures from C.S. Lewis, and though they were never personally acquainted Lewis would exert a powerful influence on Packer's life and his work. When Packer left Oxford with his doctorate on Richard Baxter in 1952, he didn't immediately begin his academic career, but spent a three-year term at a parish as a minister in suburban Birmingham. He had a varied professional life. He spent the first half of his career in England before moving to Canada for the second half. In England, he held various teaching posts at theological colleges in Bristol, during which he had decade-long uh, Interlude as warden or director at the Latimer House at Oxford University in the Clearinghouse for Evangelical Interests in the Church of England. In that role, he was one of three uh, most influential evangelical leaders in England, along with John Stott and Martin Lord Jones. Uh, Jones rather. Packer's uh, move to Regent College in Vancouver in 1979 shocked the evangelical world but enlarged his influence for the rest of his life. Although Packer was a humble man who repudiated the success ethic, His life nonetheless reads like a success story. His first book, Fundamentalism and the Word of God, published in 1958, sold some 20,000 copies in his first year and has consistently been in print since. In 2005, Time Magazine named Packer one of the 25 most influential evangelicals. When Christianity Today conducted a survey to determine the top 50 books that have shaped evangelicals, Packer's uh, book, Knowing God, came in fifth. His uh, fame and influence were not something that he set out to accomplish. He steadfastly refused to cultivate a following. Instead, he made his mark with his typewriter, which he used to compose his articles and books throughout his life. Jay Packer filled so many roles that we can accurately think of him as having had multiple careers. He earned his livelihood by teaching and was known to those who were his students as a professor. But the world at large knows Packer as an author and a speaker. Packer himself ascribed, to, ascribed the fame rather and success that he achieved to divine providence, and it is obvious that this is the case. He did not set out to be famous. He simply did the task that was placed before him and left the outcome to God. Speaking to teenagers in a living room was as likely as an assignment for him as addressing a packed auditorium. J.I. Packer was above all serviceable to the kingdom of God and its king. His ministry concluded in 1920, or rather in 2016, let's get that right, when he became unable to read, travel, or speak publicly due to going blind from macular degeneration. When asked late in his life what his final words to the church might be, Packer replied, I think I can boil it down to four words. Glorify Christ every way. That can serve as an epithet for Mr. Uh, what Mr. Packer did in his lifetime and what he is doing now. Again, J.I. Packer has gone home to be with Jesus at the age of 93, having passed away on Friday. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Kilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow when we talk with Ron Price, author of Play Nice in Your Sandbox at Home, how to enjoy peaceful relationships with the important people in your life. Have a great night.